Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. Or if you're an Anchor user and you'd like to leave me a voice message, please feel free to do so by clicking the link at About This Episode. Today we start a new work called The Money, written in 1965 by Theodore Pratt. Theodore Pratt was also the author of a book which was later turned into a film called The Incredible Mr. Limpet, starring Don Knotts. Don Knotts, as you remember, also played Deputy Barney Fife in the old Andy Griffith episodes. And now, without further ado, let's jump into The Money by Theodore Pratt. Buckingham Hills had no hills. It was a comparatively small, new real estate development which was as flat as a pancake and had had its natural trees and shrubs bulldozed out of existence because it was cheaper to clear the land that way in one fell, devastating, unhesitating swoop than to leave growth and its name was just another of those phony tony appellations which are supposed to impress people and give a spurious superiority to a place that had none of its own in addition to the hills having no hills the connotation of it being a royal place with the name buckingham imported from england had no basis in fact Buckingham Hills was merely another middle-class development with modest, though rather attractive, homes of two and three bedrooms, a few with two baths, and still fewer boasting split levels by means of a small hillock of dirt piled up to give the effect. The whole place had nothing whatsoever to distinguish it on the grounds of quality. The redwood board fence built around it to shut off the woods where the development was located on the edge of the city had begun to peel its varnish a mistake to have applied it and in one place it already showed after only three years signs of falling down the roads made an attempt at being curved as the developers boasted but this was only to the extent that the streets after departing from the slightly wider road at the entrance the single way in and out branched to either side and then went straight down and around to the end there being a number of them connected by a street across the middle the curving consisted of the turns having rounded corners instead of square so far only sixteen houses had been built in a space for eighty on the seventy-five foot lots buckingham hills was in a common real estate development stage of hiatus its first splurge of promotion had worn off with not nearly as many lots sold as expected and fewer houses built now it sat awaiting more gradual growth some of the lots probably would never be purchased losing out to newer developments with greater and better promises the single distinction possessed by buckingham hills could not be accurately termed that when the developers purchased the land they found they could not obtain one piece this was owned by old alfred wesley an eccentric recluse who had lived in his dilapidated frame house all his life the white paint of his two-story house had mostly peeled off the front porch sagged and the steps leading up to it were worth your life to mount it had not been possible to bulldoze his land so that his trees and shrubs overgrown and untrimmed still stood these were looked upon as blights 
The old man, when approached about selling his house and land, absolutely refused. This was his home. He had no intention of selling it to anyone, especially to someone who would tear it down. He didn't care if it was the only piece that remained to round out the property. He wasn't rounding out anything except the few years of life he had left, and he wouldn't sell. Alfred Wesley looked a great deal like his house, if a human being can look like a house, at least he was its counterpart. He was a ruin of a man. Once tall, he was now shrunken, thin, wrinkled, and somewhat stooped. He appeared to be older than his late seventies because of his unkempt appearance and unregulated life during the many years he had withdrawn into himself." his clothes were old worn torn stained and shapeless his faded blue eyes looked out from his pinched face through steel-rimmed eyeglasses he was seldom shaved his ancient house stood at the back of buckingham hills on the rear street coventry road off toward the left corner on the west end all by itself with no new houses around or near it or even across the street from it for no one wanted to buy a lot near what was called that monstrosity the old man protested bitterly at being enclosed by the redwood fence but there wasn't anything he could do about that refusing to associate with any of the people of the hills he lived in his decrepit house imprisoned by modernity Five children lived in Buckingham Hills, shut off in the fenced little community. They had an entity and miniature world of their own. They kept a good deal to themselves, forming a tight group, even though four of them were boys and only one a girl. It was the girl, Gracie Owen, eleven, who proposed that they call themselves the Five Musketeers. Joy Weldon, the youngest, eight, agreed enthusiastically joey was tow-headed with big blue trusting angelic eyes and he said i used to be a musketeer and i still got my mickey mouse ears at this gracie shivered in her tight blue jeans her white shirt tail dropping outside shook slightly she shuffled her feet in her sneakers which were just as dirty and worn as the boys her blonde hair cut almost as short as a boy's flipped on her neat narrow head seeing her from a distance it was difficult to tell her from a boy, for she was as straight up and down as a board. She informed Joey, That isn't the same. The second boy, George Nicholson, the eldest, twelve, had made a disgusted sound at what Joey said. George was tall for his age, and his fair hair, cut to a stiff pompadour, added to his height. He told Joey loftily, The musketeers is something else, not that kid stuff. It's a story a man wrote. Paul King elucidated. Paul was also eleven. He was a slim, sensitive-looking boy, dark, with thick black hair, handsome, and sometimes not always a bit deliberate. His family had built on Westminster Road, not far from George's house on Coventry Road, in the far corner from Alfred Wesley's old home. All the streets of Buckingham Hills were named after well-known places in England. Gracie lived on Whitehall Circle, the central road in the community. Joey lived on Cornwall Road, one over from Gracie. In reference to Paul's remark, Joey said, Sure, Walt Disney. The fifth member of their group, Henny Payne, who was ten, brown-haired, stocky, and agreeable, and who lived on Oxford Road, well west of Alfred Wesley's house, said, We don't mean him. We mean somebody else, said Gracie. 
This man was called something French. I don't remember exactly what. Disney, explained George, was Mouse. This is Musk. There's a difference. Joey looked confused, but he was ready to accept the dictum of his elders. All right. So we're the musketeers, the same as in the book, said Gracie. In the book, Paul pointed out, there were only three musketeers. What's it matter? asked Henny. Paul considered that and decided, I don't care if you don't. What do we do? asked Joey. We do like their motto, George told them. One for all, or something. One for all, one for all. Gracie both corrected and finished. What's that mean? Joey wanted to know. George informed him, it means everything we do is for each other. If you do something, it's for us all, said Paul. If we all do something, it's for one of us. He looked a bit baffled at this, but he stuck out his chin resolutely to back up his words. You see, Henny demanded of Joey. Joey claimed, sure. Not long after deciding to call themselves the Five Musketeers, during the first days of school vacation, they built their clubhouse. They had it all planned before school let out. Their planning came from two new houses being built in Buckingham Hills. From these they had cadged cast-off lengths, lengths of lumber, including two-by-fours and flat boards, nails, and some lengths of tar paper, together with the round ten circles to hold this down, through the center of which a nail was to be driven. If by chance some good lumber that could have been used in house-building got mistaken for the other kind, no one seemed to miss it. They carried their building materials as they acquired them to the far northeast of Buckingham Hills to the vacant lot between Alfred Wesley's house and the corner. This was at the foot of Oxford Road, the most remote spot in the development, which could not be seen very well from any house in the section except that of Alfred. They stashed the materials behind the thick growth at the side of the old man's place so that not even he seemed to notice them, or at least he made no question of it. The day the five musketeers began their building, Alfred Wesley made a big question of it. Under George's direction, from a rough plan he had drawn up on a piece of brown wrapping paper, the children set to work. Three of their families, though two of them did not know it, had contributed tools for the project. An old hammer, a rusty saw, and a shovel with this handle cracked but wired together. With the shovel they dug, taking turns, four hoes, and in these planted lengths of two-by-fours for their corner posts. These well set in, they prepared to nail them more two-by-fours for cross-pieces to the top. The clubhouse would measure about nine feet by eight, and inside a little over five feet high, big enough for any of them to stand erect. George was standing on a wooden box, nailing hard, when he heard an adult shout from nearby. He stopped his work and, with the other musketeers, looked up. Alfred Wesley stood not far from their endeavors, and he had shouted in an excited, raspy voice, "'What do you think you're doing?' They stared at him for a moment, stupefied. It was the first time he had ever spoken to them. Gracie was the first to answer. Why, Mr. Wesley, we're building a shack. George gave this a better tone. A clubhouse. For the five musketeers, explained Paul. That's us, Henny put in. Joey, not wanting to be left out, said, Us. The old man glanced once at his house and then back to their endeavor. Pointing to it, he raged. 
Don't you go building it here! George stopped the arm holding his hammer. George dropped the arm holding his hammer and got down from his box. But we live in Buckingham Hills, Gracie began. We're residents. I don't care where you live or who you are, the old man cried. You can't build any shack next door to my house. The five musketeers stiffened. They had been willing at first to discuss it, but they didn't like being shouted at. Paul, whose father was a lawyer, took a legal to tone. He indicated the cleared lot and said, You don't own this property. What'd you say about owning? It was obvious that the old man was slightly deaf. Paul cried, I said, You don't own this property. Don't, hey? George shouted, No, you don't. And you don't either, Alfred Wesley replied. So you get right off it. Henny claimed, You haven't got any right to put us off. Joey gave a jump up and down. No right! Now they were yelling at each other with the old man hearing everything the first time, no trouble at all. I tell you, you get right off, he cried. I don't want you close to my house, do you hear? Get out of here! The five musketeers did not move, but stood staring at him, held by the depth of his rage. He began to shout again, and the children answered him, all talking and arguing at once, trying to point out they wouldn't harm him or his house in any way, and he screaming at them to go away at once. In the midst of this, Mr. McGill, the city policeman who cruised around Buckingham Hills in his patrol car every afternoon at this time, came by slowly when he saw and then heard what was going on. He stopped his car. Mr. McGill, in his brown uniform, got out and came over to the group. He was a large man with a puffy face. Say, what's going on here? They told him. Five children and Alfred Wesley all at the same time, with the old man dominating it finally by sheer persistency and shrill voice, ordering Mr. McGill, You get them out of here! Tell them to stop it and go away! Mr. McGill regarded him. He, too, was willing to be reasonable until shouted at, a common condition of the human race. Even so, as a police officer instructed to serve the public, he tried to remain... He tried to maintain a peaceable condition. Well now, Mr. Wesley, I can't see where they're harming you in any way. Harming me? demanded the old man. Of course they're harming me. They're here, ain't they? That isn't harming you, Mr. McGill, Mr. McGill pointed out. Certainly it is. So you get them out and tell them to stay out. Mr. McGill turned to the children. You're not going to harm Mr. Wesley, are you? We won't hurt him, George asserted. We only want to build our place, Gracie pointed out. Mr. McGill asked the others, that go for the rest of you? Paul said, we won't touch anything of Mr. Wesley's. We won't do a thing to him, said Henny. Not a thing, echoed Joey. Mr. McGill turned back to the old man. You see, it will be all right. It'll be what? It will be all right, Mr. Wesley. Won't be all right, he snapped. Won't be all right at all. Well, said Mr. McGill in a good, strong voice, I think we ought to let them build their place. It'll keep them out of other trouble. That's a fine way for the law to act, the old man accused. A fine way! He shook his finger at the children. He was so aroused that he dribbled slightly at the mouth. All I can say is that you'd better not come near my house, do you hear? Don't you come near it! 
He glared at all of them, including Mr. McGill, and then stomped back to his house. Here he negotiated the front steps carefully so as to avoid the places which he knew well where he might fall through, and went inside. Mr. McGill considered all this and the children. "'You'd better do as he says. You'll do that, won't you? Don't bother him any.' They promised faithfully not to go near Mr. Wesley or his house. Mr. McGill, with a last glance at the situation, cautioned them to be sure to live up to their word, and he went back to his prowl car and drove off. Yipe! said Joey. End of segment one.